This week's episode of This Is Only a Test is made possible by the fine folks at Evident. Evident provides a simple, secure platform that lets businesses confidently know who they're dealing with without the risk and expense of handling sensitive personal data. From identity and credential verifications to background checks and everything in between, businesses of all sizes can get the answers they need easily and securely. Visit evidentid.com slash test to sign up and start running verifications today. Again, visit evidentid.com slash test to sign up and start running verifications today. That's evidentid.com slash test. Let's start the show. For Thursday, February 28th, the last day of February 2019, welcome to This Is Only a Test, the official podcast of Tested.com. Welcome to the podcast this week. I'm Norm, your host, gone last week, back this week, and joined by Kishore Hari. Hello. I got to play Norm all of last week. I How got was to it go having on... a three-month-old child? No, I didn't get that part. I just got to host a, be on a couple pa- tested podcasts oh. in the Norm chair both nice. times. It's a comfortable chair, isn't it? No, not the. Uh, they made me sit in the ejector seat one on Still Entitled. That's, That's not, not the comfortable one. Not. I know. It's a very fun chair to look at. But it's not a great chair to sit on. Well, thank you for sitting in on Still Entitled last week. And thank you for hosting last week. You guys did a a fine duo cast. It was the best duo cast Jeremy and I have ever hosted. That's right. And and the best duo cast so far of the month. Maybe not so far. Maybe not so after today. Because we got another duo cast today. If you're watching the video, you already know this. But Jeremy is out this week. Today's actually his birthday birthday i think everyone should be silently singing along in their head happy birthday to our friend jeremy and i say silently singing along because we don't want it a takedown notice to pay royalties isn't it still royalties i I, I think that's done oh you can sing the song sing the song we're not going to your spin on that song so jeremy uh is off this week he'll be back next week we have kind of a funky schedule i'm actually gone next week as well although we'll see we'll see what so we, next what week we will be the best duo cast jeremy and i have ever done we'll we'll try to make something work we're doing a lot of traveling wait why are you traveling so much where where were you last week i was in new york i was in new york all week uh we're doing some video shoots for a project that we can't talk too much about just yet but in uh joey and i were in new york visiting uh some friends of tested we uh hung out and filmed with uh melissa ing a uh, cluster um, uh, she makes, of course, beautiful uh, armor that she designs and 3D prints prototypes and then manufactures. If you haven't watched the Gauntlet video she did with Adam, it's it's one of the best uh, videos that demonstrates just her incredible engineering on the on her armor work. Yeah, and she was uh, on an episode of Still Entitled when she was in San Francisco last. Uh, something that Adam uh, told me about when he visited her shop was. The, just that, uh, what an untraditional, unconventional uh, shop she has because she basically works out of an office, I think, barely bigger than this room. Um, and that is a really cool thing. That, so you got to visit it? Yes, yeah, yeah. We, was we it totally intense, like how she organizes? It's, you know, it was, it was like an office. It was like, but, but with 
like the types of fabrication that she does, she can, you know, prototype and 3D print, and she can she has a vacuum former and and experiment with different things. I, I don't think she do, she doesn't do any of the uh, casting there that happens off site because of the chemicals, but having it you know in the basically a back room of a music studio um, is a really interesting thing. Like you can you can make anywhere. It doesn't need to be. The cave, it doesn't need to be in a big shop. It doesn't even need to be in your garage, which a lot of people do work out of, because um, this is New York. For those ardent followers of Adam on Twitter, I think, you know, was it last year or a couple years ago, he was highlighting people's tiny maker spaces yeah. oftentimes. Like, people would send in pictures, and uh, Tested would do that, too. I love the, seeing those, because it, it reinforces what you just said. Like, you can make anywhere. Uh, and you don't need the fanciest equipment necessarily to make either. Totally, totally. So really fun time. Got to see her armor in person. Uh, and we did some f- fun shoots with that, which hopefully you all there will be able to see in, a, in the coming months, I'll say. Uh, and then we also um, did not stay in Manhattan. We were in uh, we were on the, the east side in, in uh, Queens. Um, and lovely, loved seeing Queens. It snowed there. So oh, for that's a, awesome. a West Coaster for a Bay Area native, that's a, a concept completely foreign to me. You know, the closest we have to snow is going to Tahoe, which is like for a purpose. You go to ski or you go to Reno for why ever you – why would you go to Reno? You wouldn't want to go to Reno. There's no real reason to go to Reno. But being in a big city – like the, one of the biggest cities in the world, and seeing it snow was really neat. You were basically in that Avengers Endgame 2 trailer, the second one, where yeah. they, like, they're flying over Queens. They fly over the Met Stadium, and oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. that's all set in Queens. Oh, yeah, that's right, yeah. Uh, and then we made our way through Manhattan, didn't stop there, but to uh, New Jersey, where we got to spend a couple of days with Rick Lyon, uh, the uh, puppet fabricator and puppeteer, who Adam had filmed a video with um, a couple of years ago now. Oh my gosh, when he made his his puppet, yeah. Uh, and Rick is awesome. He of course designed all the puppets for Avenue Q and was one of the original cast members. And I had just seen like Joey had been there before, but I had never been in his shop, and I didn't realize what a it's a wonderful shop. He has like the entire floor of this uh, old warehouse essentially. Um, and there are Avenue Q puppets everywhere because he still fabricates for the show. Can Puppet Norm be that far away? For uh, our, I, I have a Puppet Norm. You have a Puppet Norm? I, I do. Oh, it's a, it's a you're blockhead. About your ba- it's, it's right behind you. Oh my God. Twist. I thought you were talking about your baby for a second. Oh, yeah. He, he's also kind of a puppet, or he thinks. All right. He, let's, he thinks I'm the puppet. Let's dive into the top story of the week. Story this week. A lot of what we'll be talking about uh, this week kind of is the tail end of what you guys started talking about last week, which was Mobile World Congress. Of course, the big Galaxy S10 announcement was last week. But for us, maybe the biggest announcement and something we've been highly anticipating is HoloLens 2. And so Microsoft held a big event. They showed it off. People have been using it. Uh, and the details are out. So uh, here's just some of the broad view. You know, of course, HoloLens, the first widely available from a big company AR headset uh, using, you know, the, the, this, this type of the prism technology in, um, in its lenses um, and very expensive when it came out. Still very expensive now. It ended up being 
way more of a enterprise device. I mean, this this new kit is thirty five hundred dollars, so so not still, cheap. Yep, yep, that's a little more more expensive than than Magic Leap. So they know that this is still not for consumers, uh, and this comes off of uh, for people who've been following AR and Hololens, Microsoft's rumored cancellation of a second Hololens uh, two years ago now when they were supposed to do a follow-up and they realized that maybe that they wasn't ready or the market wasn't ready, but they feel like what they've made now is a adequate successor. So like you said, $3,500, um, huge, you know, the, the, the big things I think can be, can fall into three categories. First of all, optics. From what I understand, uses very similar lensing system. So the type of images in terms of how crisp they are, uh, their high resolution um, in terms of the uh, the opaqueness of the image is going to be similar to you know what you're going to find with Magic Leap and Holland's Gen One, but higher resolution and wider field of view. Now Holland's, if you if you tried Holland's, I time? have tried the Holland's. I played that robot game where they're like coming emerging the a wall. I can't yeah, remember what it's called. Yeah, the spiders coming out of yeah. the walls, which you know on on the Magic Leap, that's essentially Doctor the Doctor G's Invaders is the Magic Leap version of that game. Uh, but the best way to describe the field of view for first gen Holland's is it's kind of like you know the size of maybe half of a business card. I'd say larger than postage stamp, but half fold the business card in half, fold the credit card in half. Hold in fr- arm's length in front of you, and that is basically yeah. And that seems about right. And it's basically double that. So uh, there's some overlays you can find online. Um, people have kind of mocked up the field of view uh, and how it compares to a, a Magic Leap, and it is very comparable to Magic Leap, uh, which is to say that it's still fairly limited. And you know, it may be useful enough for uh, for for enterprise applications for the kind uh, of like teleconferencing, projecting images into your space stuff. Hollands has always had great spatial mapping. Uh, so uh, it really feels like an iterative improvement. Look, I'm not Jeremy, so I'm going to ask a lot of dumb questions here. So apologies in advance. But one of the things every time I've tried Magic Leap or the HoloLens is that in real-world conditions, you're doing it in a room with stuff in it, right? That's why the spatial mapping ma- matters so much. I'm not in doing this in a, in a, a, in a giant empty room. I, I don't have one of those in my life. Uh, so how much does it matter that the field of view has enhanced so much in real-world applications where there's so much occlusion anyways with just stuff? Yeah, so really good question because it really doesn't like, – this does, does not have multiple planes of focus, right? This is not going to solve convergence accommodation. Uh, there's going to be a sweet spot for where these holograms live in your space. And if it's anything like HoloLens 1, then it's going to be – like at the not not necessarily things in the near field holding up a virtual thing floating in your hand, which can still look good, but it's going to be things coming out of walls in you know in the distance. So best use in maybe those type of environments, construction environments, you know, design studios, uh, not replacing a a desktop mm-hmm. uh, computer screen or you know making a virtual laptop screen in front of you because that's when when things are up close and when you when you want to interact with things that are closer to you, that's when field of view matters more. Uh, that's when minimum f- distance also matters for something mm-hmm. magically when you, you can't put things closer than a certain distance. Uh, I believe Holland's can, but then that's when you have convergence problems as well. All right, so better optics, larger field of view. What's the third thing? Um, so um, I, would, I would consider optics field of view one thing. Right? Okay, one um, thing, second there's, thing. Yeah. There's also ergonomics. 
So it's still all in one device, right? The computer is on the headset. There's no, um, there's no battery pack and no separate compute unit. It is compute in the band, essentially. But they've redesigned the ergonomics, and I think they've touted however many tests they did with different head sizes that it's easier to put on, and you can, I, think, I believe you can flip it up, the flip-up visor. So Oh, cool. Can, it, I think it makes sense. Like the, the problem I have with Magic Leap I have no problem with the uh, the the backpack, right, or the the, the little the, puck, the, the computer yeah. puck thing that can go in a jacket pocket. Like you can wear it as a sling. Whatever. I don't really even feel it that much. Yeah, you're gonna... I mean, outside of getting like slightly warm when I had it, like you know, on my jeans, like it, I didn't really notice it. I prefer that than battery on your head. Yeah, because it's the extra weight. Right, uh, but the thing I don't like about Magic Leap is design wise. It's not easy to both use that and to, to basically go on and off easily, right? You can there's a button on the the compute device that uh, you can press that says it's a reality button basically to turn off the display. But then still, it, it's a little bit tinted, uh, and you're what I'm doing mostly is like kind of like like in a VR headset, like shifting it up or looking through the gaps into the real world to look at my phone or lifting my head up to peer into things in the real world. I want the flip up visor. Um, wait, wait, wait. Just one second. You said reality button without like a smile on your face. Like every time somebody says that word, I'm just like, so, I just kind of smile a little silly. bit. Yeah. It's really silly. I love it. It's a fun, it's, silly thing. It's a little space ballsy end. So that's why I, I love it. So, but yes, flip up visor. I'm with you. That's, I think that's a, a really nice uh, integration. And you, there's a ton of pictures of people that have tested this showing the flip up visor. They kind of look like a Vegas dealer wearing one of those kind of like. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and the, the other thing is that with the flip-up visor um, and, and the way, like, these all look like funky devices. Magic Leap looks like funky goggles. HoloLens looks like funky, bulky um, visor, right? Right. And and I think they're embracing that. They're not. This is not going to be tight to your face. They're not glasses form factor. Uh, and the embracing that form factor of it being a flip-up visor means, one, you have the ease of being able to flip up and down. Two, glasses fit underneath it so you don't need to have custom prescriptive lenses uh, which is great and also it allows for a more open peripheral view into the real world so even when you have the headset on and you're looking at their the holograms or whatever projections you can still peer left and right and I think magically it's a little because it is tighter to your face uh, your natural field of view in the real world outside the field of view of those projections is also just a little limiting um, so this is great so uh, of the ones you've mentioned, those make a lot of sense to me. I'm waiting for the phrase eye tracking to yeah. show up. And tracking. Tracking is the third thing, right? So now it does have eye tracking. Uh, the eye tracking is used for logging in, so like Windows Hello style. Uh, and uh, app developers have access to it. So they have one demonstration is like a teleprompter that can, as your eyes, I mean, it's a very, I don't know who would be tele, using a teleprompter while, while wearing an AR headset, but... The fact is that they can they can follow your eyes as they move left to right, and you can then dynamically change content or that is information that Microsoft finds valuable. Can they? Does eye tracking work through glasses though? Like if I'm wearing glasses, I mean because I I smudge my glasses, all that kind of stuff. I mean I assume it 
Yeah, uh, like yeah, they it, must it, have worked that IR, out, it's right? It's IR, right? Like, yeah, I, I think it's more about uh, less about the smudges on the glasses you uh, you wear, and more about the frames of your glasses. Yeah, like absorbing some of that IR stuff. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Uh, and then of course the tracking for hand tracking because they have stuck with a no physical controller model where magically it has the one controller totem, whatever you want to call it, and will have support for two totems, left, right hands in the future. Something that I believe makes a ton of sense and Magic Leap has uh, hand tracking as well. Uh, Microsoft is kind of all in with hand tracking and this being you know, voice, voice controls and hand controls. And the people that have used HoloLens 2 have said that the new 20 points of articulation in the hands um, is pretty advanced and um, I would love to see how it compares to like a Leap Motion, uh, which has been integrated into VR headsets. And if it's, it's good, if they can do skeletal modeling to that degree, um, then I would hope that you're going to allow for a lot more interaction poses than the kind of really forced, you know, pinching poses that you need to do with HoloLens 1. Combined with eye tracking is where it gets interesting. I still think like a physical remote is really critical right now, uh, especially for anything that's sort of game-like in its, uh, in, in its mechanics. But there are some reports that there are some demos out there with the eye tracking where just you moving your eye and looking at virtual objects, you can actually interact with them. And so now, like, if you have not only good skeletal model hand tracking where you don't have to do these, like, forced gestures or saying, but also looking at something can force it to interact. Now I think you can start to see the pathway away from a physical remote. It's a question of how well does that actually work? Yeah, yeah. Um and, I mean, this is this still feels like. I mean, I'm glad it's, it's they actually released this, and they, for people who actually in design studios or wherever their business partners, enterprise partners, who are making use of Hololens, this feels like they're still committed to the platform. Uh, and they did say Hololens three would be just another couple of years out. So, you know, this is both supposed to be an iterative upgrade, and it means that that team has some you know, hardware to push out. They're going to learn, have lessons, learn from eye tracking, from hand tracking. Um, the compute, which is right now Qualcomm uh, 850, uh, will hopefully, you know, that, that stuff will improve over time. Battery life seems pretty weak, three hours of battery life on this. So definitely it's not for... But you can still, like, be plugged in and do stuff, right? Yeah. I mean, it defeats the point, but you can do it. Yes. There's USB-C connectivity, um, you know, there's Wi-Fi, uh, and, and it's, it's you know, it's lighter, so so it's um, as opposed to slightly lighter, right? I think no, 1. that's 3 not pounds, really lighter. It's 1.25 pounds. It's, it's basically same weight, um, and... Uh, Which is the only disappointing thing for me, because I always feel like when I put on the original HoloLens that it didn't quite... It was a little top-heavy for me overall, the experience, so... I, I think what we learned is that the absolute weight as long as you're not above a certain amount right like at one between one and 1.5 pounds on your head is okay it's more about uh how it's fitted and so the fitting is better this time and this again something we'd love to yeah. test uh then that the feeling of weight is mitigated um and it's, if you're only going to use this for two to three hours at a time most likely not even that with the that's a long time that is a very long time so this is not you know, if, if, the, the funny thing is for the companies, the big companies, right, who are going to be working in AR, obviously Microsoft, obviously uh, Magic Leap, 
you know, as a, as a big company because they have a ton of money and investment. That's kind Apple, of like, like Google assume. and Apple is the the third one. They really all three feel like AR for different users and different applications. And if and and really Magic Leap in the middle, and Microsoft on one end with the enterprise first, and then Apple when they do it will be probably very consumer, consumer first. Yeah. And I cannot imagine this being more different than an uh, an Apple based AR headset. Oh, I mean, it's going to be completely different. I, I think what, what Microsoft is going to have to get right, and there's hints of this, is they're going to use like Azure to connect multiple people, uh, their HoloLenses together, so you can interact in the same environment together. That is going to be critical for an enterprise application, because if you're talking about this like people in a manufacturing facility on the floor, like sort of examining things, they are going to have to be linked together uh, in a way. And so... That's what I really want to see is multiple hollow lenses working together because that justifies the enterprise. The the other thing that they made a big deal, and they had Tim Sweeney from Epic and Games uh, and um, out there, you know, and Unreal out on stage, really to to talk about was getting developers excited. And one of the big kind of shifts for them is hoping that HoloLens will be more of an open platform, kind of moving against the grain for what, even what Microsoft has been doing with Windows apps and, of course, what Magic Leap is doing with their apps uh, and Apple, of course, in terms of walled gardens uh, and letting developers create their own app stores and bring their own browsers in this and their strategy for uh, for dev support for uh, HoloLens Gen 2 and maybe even Gen 3, although I think as that stuff moves more toward consumers, I feel like it's going to get more restrictive and less open. But at least now, to get people on board, um, they want their uh, their software to be a little bit more like Android than, than iOS, uh, which is a good thing, but again, I don't know if that's compelling. You know, you can, you can tout Epic's involvement all you want, but uh, I don't know how the, how actually how effective that will be, um, or how meaningful that will be for consumers uh, when Microsoft does p- release a product for consumers. The the final thing is we would be remiss to mention um, the the other application for Hololens and the relationship Microsoft, have, which is with the military, mm-hmm. and employees at Microsoft have penned uh, signed an open letter to their CEOs uh, saying that they are against the Hololens use in AR use in the military. Not uh, so different than what Google employees did recently about uh, a military contract. Now, we don't have any information that this army contract is anything remotely nefarious. Like, I would imagine for a product like this, they're looking for ways to have a bunch of people work together in a way that you would expect an enterprise product. But I mean, to the, the point rallying that, of the workers is Yeah, the, when you have 250 thing. people in that division at the company signing this letter, it, I mean, they should, they should take notice. And uh, these are good concerns to have early, early on, right, if we're talking about transparency. I don't necessarily think or that you know, military use should be completely restricted. And if they're not going to work with Microsoft, like, like Microsoft, this is, now is the time to have a conversation rather than the, well, where we are with privacy and Facebook, for example. Where yeah, overall, we haven't had a lot of conversations about the, the social implications of the technology being produced. And to have it much more upstream is consistent with where we are right now as a culture. And so I'm glad the workers brought this up. Yes. I yes. don't know enough information about what the contract is, what the use case is at the end of the day to say anything more than good on them to at least bring up the conversation. Right, right. Um, and, you know, the, the contract specifically is like a you know, half billion dollar contract, which I don't know what that means with U.S. Army. I mean, that's 
I, I don't think that's that big of a deal in terms of like the dollars or, but it really matters what it's for and, yeah. and what their plans are going forward. Like, do they have lines with uh, certain groups that are going to be using this tool about the, they won't cross? I don't know. So, you know, Microsoft CEO, and we're kind of moving away from the product talk here, you know, Satya Nadella talked about like their just fundamental stance as a company is that they are not going to withhold technology. Uh, they're going to trust you know, the protectors of democracy and um, uh, the, the military and the U.S. government, which I, I think it's kind of a just sidestepping the issue. Like it's Yeah. I mean, it's, it, to me, I get that this was like politicized because they, they brought up the military. But this is really a question of like, how are you letting this technology be used by the enterprise users in the world? And like, it doesn't matter if it's military. It could be any uh, any entity. Right. Right. Absolutely. Yeah. AR is going to be is going to have the potential to really change. I mean, imagine if we had these conversations when smartphones were coming out and no one had these. We we're just kind of excited about technology, right, for, for touchscreens. And, you know, and, and now they're kind of ubiquitous. So I, we, we think AR will be ubiquitous in the future, or hopefully. Maybe. Um, so that's HoloLens 2. Uh, we really would love to get our hands on one, even if that means we have to go somewhere to use it. If any, if any... This is only test listeners out there would like to hook us up with Holland's two access. We we would be very grateful, um, and I'm sure Jeremy will have more to talk about when he's back next week. Um, so let's go to our next segment. Welcome to the way too late Oscar recap show. I know. I imagine the straight we had to actually go with a technology story first as our top story, and not with a pop culture Oscar story. And that is because it's Thursday by the time you're listening. To this. I actually didn't watch most of it. Me, me neither. I, I had it on the background. Actually, I actually had some yep. people over at my house, and and so I, I missed the opening, non-host opening. Um, everything I heard was that it was it's it, it turns out you don't need a host for the Oscars. The non-host thing is fine, even though like you know Amy Poehler and Tina Fey and Maya Rudolph basically did like a little mini host monologue. Yeah, anyways. right, right. You can you can do that without having to have one person shepherd the whole thing. That role maybe just retire it. I'm sure they won't. I'm sure they'll come back. Billy Crystal is going to come back and and do one final stint as an Oscar host. The the Oscars are in a microcosm, one step forward, one step back. Like it's always constantly in this tug and pull with itself on on what this show is. Yeah, we saw that with the the whole like, are we going to award cinematography during the award show? We see it with the host thing. We see it with um, who's nominated and like the omissions and frankly. I mean, I hadn't seen every Oscar movie, but frankly, this seemed like a bad year. It it did. A lot of bad takes. I mean, there was there was some stuff. We should celebrate the things that we are excited about, like Into the Spider-Verse. Boom. Yes. Like, thankful that that was. Free just Solo, best documentary. Yes. Yes. Uh, nods to things like First Man for uh, visual effects. Uh, Black Panther on costume design, Absolutely. Right? Marvel's first Oscars that they've they've won. Uh, and all of that is great. It, it, I think now more so than ever, it feels like the Oscars are out of alignment with, in terms of the the, the movies they actually reward. You know, when I, I am talking about things like Bohemian Rhapsody and Green Book, out of alignment with um, just where 
Hollywood and the culture of movie making and movie makers are going. Yeah, you know, I love, um, I think listeners know, I listen to the Bill Simmons podcast, and what he started doing with some of their pop culture critics is they rate the Oscars five years later about mm. the movies that actually meant right, something right, right. because that's how long it takes to sort of kind of have that situated. I mean, we felt that with like Shakespeare and Love winning. Yep, that's where, the one. Right? Shakespeare and Love, same with Private Ryan. But like you look this year, um, Spike Lee winning for Black Klansman, that movie was fine. But That's it's the thing too. Like yeah. it's not his best movie no. by any stretch. Yep. And his best movie wasn't even nominated, right? So yes. like Yes. And I, I, like Do the Right Thing is a classic movie and like one of his triumphant movies. Yep. And so it's weird that he essentially is getting a lifetime achievement award. Right. For adapted screenplay. Uh yeah. And then Green Book was just not good. Yeah. And like everyone's talking about the swirl of controversy about like the the race, the reverse driving. I don't like that. Actually, feels tired to me. I just thought that movie wasn't that good. If, if you look at the eight movies that that were nominated, like Roma, you know, uh, the favorite. Um, I I don't think there was any way Black Panther would have would have would have won it. Uh, but I think last year was just like the better year when yeah. Shape of Water won. Yeah. I mean, and I didn't really love Shape of Water that much, um, but Into the Spider-Verse, I think that movie should have, like, this is a year for it to be nominated for Best Picture. I think they had to choose between that and Black Panther. Yeah, I guess so. And the... and I'm still out here saying, where are the Paddington 2 noms? That was a <laughs> okay. brilliant movie. I would, I would like to have a conversation about that. I know everyone touts Paddington 2. I've watched it, finally. I think it's on Netflix uh, or Amazon. Maybe Amazon. I enjoyed it. I thought it was delightful. It's not the best movie of the year. No, I'm not saying it was the best movie of the year. I was saying, where's the nomination for what, what, For what? Well, I thought, first of all, it was wholesome. And, like, there's no more wholesome movies anymore in this world. Uh, I thought it was. It's in my top five movies of the year. So I think it could really? have been. Yeah. Really? I would I I liked Roma, so I'd put that there. Into the Spider Verse, I liked a lot. I have to like, Infinity War. Yeah, I'm obligated. I'm, right? I'm obligated to fill by... two slots in that film or in, in your top five. No, that's just one okay, slot. Okay, okay, that's just one slot. I mean, so like what like Paddington two like slots you, in there? I, I don't think you watched enough movies last year. Probably did, I mean, did you not see so better? Did, did you not uh, uh, sorry to bother you? Um, oh, sorry to bother uh, you. Blind on my spotting. List. I think blind I spotting blind over spotting. sorry to bother you. Um, I actually like sorry to bother you. I just like the twist of that movie so much. I, but I didn't see blind spotting. So I mean, if you talk about movies from uh, written and directed by uh, African American filmmakers uh, about you know racial tension, Black Klansman, sorry to bother you, um, and and uh, blind spotting, blind spotting. I, I did not love. like Black Black Klansman that much. I thought Paddington Two was better. By the way, that is the weirdest comparison of two movies yes. I think we can yep. ever have. Agreed. Yep, yep. I went with the the, 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 the more apt comparisons. You got to watch uh, Blind Spotting. I, hey, if you want to feel good about life and see a musical number, Paddington 2. If you want to see. It could have at least Hugh gotten Grant overacting. Well, what is Hugh Grant underacting? I've it's never seen true. that. Benden Gleason in one of his best roles. He's the prisoner chef. Yep. Mm-hmm. Uh, it is it is and, uh, it is one hundred percent wholesome. And the best bear movie of twenty eighteen. What weather I don't know, but I'm sure this was the best bear based movie. Mm. Yeah. I mean, if Ted Two came out last year, I stand by what I said. 
Uh, any other notable things about the Oscars in terms of the award winners? Uh, Rami Malek for Bohemian Rhapsody as Freddie Mercury. Just watch the Queen like live concert from Wembley Stadium. Yeah. It's better than Bohemian Rhapsody. Yeah, I I I, th- I think it was a it's a fine performance. It's yeah. a, um, I'm. It was the other movie that mainstream Oscar voters were considering. I think voting for Best Picture. They also have an interesting voting system because it's a it's a ranked system, right? Like Green Book could have won if everyone had put it as their number two or three out of eight, and everyone was just very divisive about number one. Right. I don't. I don't think it was like a, a point system where number one was like weighed four times as much as number two, uh, but that's that's a, it's it's like in politics, right? When you when you have that confusing ballot, um, but it is what it is, and I think the takeaway is don't take the Oscars so seriously. Yeah, you can like the whatever movies you want to like. Uh, you can celebrate Hollywood and celebrate the culture of movie making and storytelling in many other ways. It is just one institution. Although, as far as institutions go, did you like, did you see the ad for the museum? No, I didn't. Oh, they had a whole segment kind of com- I was down in soon. LA a, couple, a few weeks ago and I saw it like it's under construction. Yeah, yeah, right next to LACMA. Mm-hmm. So uh, as I will be enjoying going to the Academy Museum when it opens, which reminds me I should probably They have like out. a theater that's going in there, right? And, oh, and they're buying that would be tons awesome. of props and costumes and it will be... Like it's a huge money. It could be a huge money hole. It's a huge investment, uh, but it's it's. Uh, I'm excited that that's a place that will exist. All right, um, would love to hear other people's thoughts on the Oscars. I think go watch movies. Go watch Spider Verse. It's going back in theaters. Oh, it's going to be in Dolby. I think so in, in IMAX. I want to say this weekend, so you can check your your local listings uh, if you. Even if you've seen it, it's worth going back. I, I want to find a way. Just do yourself to go. a favor and like feel good about the world and see Paddington too. A lot of those movies are also out on um, Blu-ray or digital uh, purchase, or, or like Roma. It's on Netflix. Or like Roma. It's, I, I haven't seen it yet because it's on Netflix. It's too easy. Yeah, I, I mean, I know a lot watch. of people that complain about seeing it on a small screen that it wasn't designed for that. Especially who directed that, like Alfonso Cuarón, right. like right. is known for these like sweeping. But it's a much more personal story, and it's semi-autobiographical. So um, I actually didn't mind watching on small screen. Okay. All right. Let's talk about. Let's continue talking about movies. We are in pop culture. Uh, we are now two weeks away from Captain Marvel. Mm-hmm. Got yep. my you ticket. Got, you, you opening got your night. Opening I, night, seven p.m. Th- wow. That Thursday night. I'm first I, showing in San Francisco. I actually don't even know when my ticket. I bought it so long ago. Reserved it so long ago. I gotta make plans for for baby to to be able to watch it. But yes, that's coming out. And uh, the first reviews are out. Um, at least the, the it's so funky, the social media embargo is has been lifted. So the critics' reviews aren't out, but the social media embargo lifted. And they're generally pretty positive from what I saw. I'm trying to kind of Joey Famelli myself and not read too much. Uh, I think... The one thing I took away from reading some of those quick impressions, because they were supposed to be very, they're spoiler free, which I'm impressed that you can sign, you can invite people to watch a movie, have them sign an NDA where they will agree to tweet about the movie at a certain time and not spoil the movie. Good job marketing, good job PR on making this system work. Uh, But there are no um, formal reviews yet. And the my takeaway from the uh, the social impressions was that it has, has a great villain. Oh, really? Yeah. 
Oh, I, I didn't get that at all. I got a lot of stuff about a cat. I, I don't want to think about the cat because I, I don't want that. I, if that's like a delightful surprise in the movie, yeah. I don't want to be sp- waiting for it the whole time. But I'm reassured that the villain of the film is compelling and steals the show in some ways. Mm. All so right. That's that's a, a spoiler-free impressions off of impressions that you can, I you can find on Twitter. genuinely excited about this movie. Like, I'm not Infinity War excited where, like, I'm living at a movie theater for a couple days, but... I'm genuinely excited because I think we're going to get our first hints at the Endgame. epic conclusion. And, and this movie definitely rides on the uh, the wave of uh, the, it's, its proximity to Endgame and also the tease at the end of Infinity. We are, of course, at yeah. End of the Wasp, which is a tangential story, which had a, a, a tie-in at the very end. Uh, but uh, this, is, this is the one. This is, this is the appetizer. Um, in between the two main, uh, this is the snack between the two main courses, and just inject any '90s nostalgia directly into my veins. Of course, I'm, I'm of course. all over it. Yeah, uh, it's already making an impact not just in uh, what the movie is going to do for Marvel and MCU, but also for Rotten Tomatoes. You read about this? Yeah, uh, it's essentially the Rotten Tomatoes has a beyond its sort of like critic tomato meter. Uh, it has an audience score, and then before the movie actually is released, they have something called a, a want-to-see rating. It's like an anticipation score. Yeah, right. and it's like anyone can go on there and like make an account and vote on this thing that is just like a, a hype meter. So from a user perspective, and, and we're talking about this because uh, Rotten Tomatoes is changing its policies to not surface the hype rating yeah, anymore the, because the want to see been, is going away completely there's been grading and people have kind of skewed uh perceptions of movies by either on both sides of uh really uh, or highly anticipating movies or uh, ranking them lower based on their personal opinions uh but outside of that what you how useful was that information to you as a movie goer Anyway, I, I don't think I even knew that thing existed right? for the most part. It was like probably something I, I've noticed on that page, but it, I didn't use it to actually decide if I was going to a movie. Right, right. Not. Isn't this, doesn't it feel like just data points and surveys that would be useful for studios that Rotten Tomatoes should be as a business selling to studios? And, and that's kind of like a, like a pre-sale tracking data, right? It's kind of interesting for industry folks and people who follow the movie business, but for, as a moviegoer, these people haven't seen the movie. What do I care whether they're excited about yeah, it? Yeah, and they're not doing actual projections on how much money it's going to make by this thing. I yeah. think it's much more useful to have the audience score once the movie's out, where you get actual like scores of, of people that have actually seen it, that knowing that it still can be brigaded and all of that kind of stuff. Well, here, here's what Rotten Tomatoes should do. Are they still owned by Amazon IMDb? I think so, yeah. Um, are they affiliated? But you, Amazon has review verification on amazon.com right you you, you can see sort this of. is a sort yeah. of right a, a ver- you bought an item you can write a review and because you it's from that account in which you bought the item is a verified review you know this is a very easy way for rotten tomatoes to make a business out of being another fandango you buy your ticket through rotten tomatoes or you partner with fandango and so you are a verified ticket purchaser and have seen the movie because it is you you know is past when you watch that movie and to put uh. it up I just don't care enough about that audience score to have that kind of level of detail. It's applied. like Yelp. No one cares about the user reviews except the people writing the reviews. Yeah. It's except people. It's for it's for uh, it's for foodies, people who enjoy eating food, who feel like they can be food critics, mm-hmm. or for 
fans of movies who feel like they can be movie critics. Look, and I think there's honest reasons that people are not excited about Captain Marvel that are totally legitimate and fine. Hey, if you have opinions about a movie, start a podcast. <laughs> we need more podcasts <laughs> in this world with your opinion about a movie. Yeah. Yeah, so uh, that's coming into effect. I, and, and Ron Tomatoes, without specifically acknowledging that this came out of uh, prograding on Captain Marvel, so they've been, they are changing their policy going forward. They've this been considering a, it for 18 months. That's fine. This is a reaction to Captain Marvel. Yeah, when did Ghostbusters come out? Was that 18 months ago? Yeah. yeah this just, also, yeah. Just, just about? Yeah. Um, all right, uh, moving on. Let's talk about some Star Wars news. Hey, no name for still no episode nine title. Were the rumors? What was what was the last big credible rumor for an episode nine title? I, I can I can throw out some suggestions. Jedi's rule. Uh, no, <laughs> no, that's a no, terrible no, no. idea. They've wrapped shooting. Yeah, there's oh, there's so many people. I I don't really I I don't see. I, I it's not that important to me what the name of episode nine is only it's like a mild spoiler that's all it is yeah i think i care i stopped caring about the names of star wars movies when attack of the clones came out <laughs> right the when phantom there's menace, no attack of any clones you're like I'm, I'm okay now. right the phantom menace was the last cool name for uh, a star wars film wait what was six six return of the jedi no no not six seven sorry seven what was seven? force awakens force awakens yeah force awakens kind of eh, eh, it's was... safe yeah, right. Last Jedi, safe. Revenge of the Sith, safe. Phantom Menace, that's a cool name. That is cool. That's, that's give that, you that. that is ominous. That is that's epic. Uh, Attack of the Clones, no. Yeah, no. Yeah, yeah. Fair. Uh, yeah. So don't really care about Episode Nine, but if you care about all the other episodes, you may want to watch a fun video edit that Topher Grace did. So to- the, the little backstory about this: there's been kind of like a a story going on uh, about Topher Grace in his spare time had edited together um, a version of the prequels and the original trilogy. Like over the weekend with a friend. Yeah, and and, and it's definitely, I, I don't think it was like just on a whim. He, he has definitely, the assumption is he's, he's spent a lot of time thinking about this and has some chops as an editor, but he did this edit in um, of the three film of the six films and showed it, screened it for friends, and it has never been released. It's one of those like for for people who do uh, who write about movie news and follow like they've always wanted to see what is the the great Topher Grace cut of of Star Wars. Uh, well, the closest we'll be able to see to that is a new cut that was recently released, and you can just Google Topher Grace Star Wars trailer. And this is a trailer, a five-minute trailer of the first six films. It essentially gives you the story arc. Yeah. The main story arc. Yeah. In the and, and I think that with watching this, you guys should just watch it for five minutes. It, you've all seen the original footage, but it, it goes to editing, and it goes to what kind of story you can tell by picking and choosing if you have 10 to 12 hours of footage and you narrow that down to five minutes what kind of story can you tell and how is it different than the stories that the other trailers for these films told for and also different than what the films themselves told spoiler alert there's not much talk of trade embargoes in this trailer or jar jar did not notice jar jar at all yeah i mean so this is like the ultimate fan service trailer it it 
it's it's totally one of these fun things. Um, anyone could have do could have done this. I think the reason it's interesting is that we've all been still waiting for that Topher Grace full movie cut, and this is just the closest we'll we'll get. I'm to not that. sure I agree with that sentiment that I'm waiting for Topher. Grace's. Maybe not you, but people who read the the movie blog news, other 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 podcasters. You know who you are. Uh, Star Wars stuff. No other big Star Wars news, right? Uh, I think every, all the all the Star Wars nine is wrapped filming. I think everyone's just excited for Dune. Dune keeps on. Everyone harvesting. is being cast in that yep. movie. Every yep. single actor ever is being cast in Dune. I think the next thing might be as soon as we finally get word on uh, Disney Plus their streaming service, because then we'll get Mandalorian details. Yeah, that's yep. the next big thing I expect. Uh, you talked about in Untitled uh, seeing a trailer for Apollo Eleven. Oh my goodness! And that comes out this week. Uh, sell me on this this documentary. It's a documentary about the Apollo Eleven launch. Sold. And, and yeah, I know. <laughs> like, and it's it used original footage, and it's gonna be shown in seventy millimeter. And uh, a the trailer, you just I just saw it on the big screen, and I started to tear up and cry. Like you just like I I liked First Man fine. Not I don't care how good of an actor Ryan Gosling is, there's nothing that replaces seeing Neil Armstrong just sitting there with his actual face in a spacesuit, getting ready to walk aboard um, uh, the ship. And so like, how, how was this unreleased footage? I have no idea. Right? Like, isn't this all public domain? Like, th- this is 50 years ago. You would think that every piece of footage related to and moon landing maybe and the buildup has been seen in one way or another and made public. Maybe I just saw a really well edited trailer that is is a hook, and when you actually go, you're going to see a lot of stuff you've seen before. Even then, I'm sold. It doesn't matter. It's going to be beautiful. When do you get to see that stuff? And it's the 50th anniversary of the Apollo 11 launch. There's no better time to do it. Yeah. So apparently, it is uh, from the NASA vault and and also broadcast. Right. The things that aren't public were. What ABC, NBC, yeah, like Walter Cronkite, and, and, and exactly. So all of that kind of peripheral media and ephemeral uh, ephemera that was around Apollo Eleven, that was collected, archived, and again it goes to what we were saying earlier: the editing of even footage that we've seen before and the presentation of that footage now in seventy millimeter uh, can really change how we perceive a story. And uh, the reviews of on this have been have been spectacular. I think it's, it's is it 100% on Rotten Tomatoes? Yeah, it's Like how do you not like as long as it like, t- tells the story, how do you not give this like an instantaneous 100%? Yeah. 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 What is not an instantaneous 100%? A movie I did catch last week while being in New York. I I one of my I I we were staying close to a movie theater like two blocks away and I so I weathered the cold and watched the like a late night showing of Battle Angel Alita. Sorry, Alita. I, Battle Angel. I kind of can't believe you went to this dumpster fire. I haven't seen this movie, but like, it has been. I it is so divisive. The spit out of it. Really, because it's it. so incredibly divisive. One, I, I read the manga when I was in middle school, and I really loved it. Uh, and uh, this was a uh, this kind of collects the first three books in that manga. The first one's actually free on Amazon Prime if you just want to read it. Uh, and it feels very it, it's an adaptation, and there are characters in this that aren't in the manga um, that are maybe the weak points of the movie, especially specifically the the love story and the love interest. Uh, but it is it, it's just fascinating because this is the film that James Cameron decided to make uh, or decided not to make when he decided to make Avatar. It was a coin flip. He came coming off of 
uh, Titanic being king of the world, billion dollars, box office, uh, he said what – he looked at technology and he said, okay, I've done practical effects. I've done – I've built the Titanic. I've filmed. I've done all I can do with water uh, and, 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 and I'll also have ex- – uh, and, and mixing practical effects with, you know, with CG – uh, his next big frontier were two two things they want to do. One, a uh, 3D movie, and two, a fully digital human. I think he said that after he saw Lord of the Rings, uh, uh, Two Towers, and first appearance of, of Gollum, he said, okay, I can do that. I can do that. And then so he had two ideas in mind, two properties he wanted to work with. Uh, one was Avatar, which he says the story as it goes is an idea he came up with in, like in high school or something. Right? Sure. Right, which I think he totally acknowledges this is like a, he loves dance. It's a you know, tried and true story. It's nothing new. Everything's a remix, whatever. Uh, and uh, Battle Angel Alita, which is a Japanese manga uh, that Guillermo del Toro introduced him to. And the character needed to be a digital human. And he thought back in 2007 that he could do a fully digital human. And then he like did a coin flip almost and said, uh, you know what? I think I like Avatar more. Let's go with Avatar. And now we have five Avatar movies. Uh, I what what the world would have been if he had decided to make Battle Angel instead, and we had five cyberpunk Japanese manga adaptation movies. I mean, you're saying words that make this sound awesome. Cyberpunk well, it, it, manga anime. From, movie, from like, that perspective, yeah. the buildup for the anticipation for me was there. Right when I when the trailer for Alita dropped last year. I really didn't know that Robert Rodriguez was doing it and that it was happening. And I was like, whoa, he handed this film off. He realized that he wasn't going to finish filming and editing Avatar 4 and 5 or whatever uh, until 2022. And he was never going to make Alita. He had the script he wrote and he handed off that script and he produced it. And I think it's a fine film. I think the action's incredible. The effects are amazing. You know how, do you remember seeing AI? Yeah, and uh, one of the best parts in, in Spielberg's AI was the uh, also a movie I didn't really love. So let's see yeah, where this div- is going. Also a divisive movie, but one of the the most more striking depictions of the characters were uh, in the the flesh fair when you had the robots, the the weird like old robots, cyborgs, and new androids uh, with like half human faces, but like you know kind of green screen CG bodies. You had this in Spades. But with a like a Japanese aesthetic and really really well done, so human faces on mechanical bodies, cyborgs. Do you need to see it on the big screen? No, I saw it in 3D and it was it was good in 3D. When typically I would have decided what? not to do 3D. Um, and coming out of this, it was fine. I think that I'm glad that James Cameron didn't do it. I'm glad that it had a little bit of a Robert Rodriguez grittiness to it and some of the weirdness that he brought in. It's his first film since. Machete Kills, I want to say, or Sin City 2, Sin City 2. Um, so I'm glad it's, you know, he's doing a big budget film and not just doing kind of indie projects uh, as a fan of Robert Rodriguez's work. I, I'd say I recommend it. I think if you are a supporter of things like Pacific Rim, it feels very much like like that. Pacific Rim came out. I wanted to see more mech movies. If you wanted to see more Jap- interesting adaptations of original stories, uh, support this film. And, and watch it. Yeah. Um, right. What was the last thing I was going to say? Uh, no, no big spoilers. It's, 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 oh, 
She turns into a battle angel. Got it. Yeah, exactly. She's she's a robot. You you really yeah. don't need to know much going in. Christoph Waltz is in it. Um, uh, uh, Rosa Salsar, I want to say, is the actress who plays the lead character. Um, oh, Avatar. So James Cameron's working on Avatar 2 and 3 right now. He's doing 2 and 3 back-to-back. I think he's like rap finishing filming on that, and then he's going to do 4 and 5, <laughs> which is insane. It's insane. How can those movies succeed? Like Avatar was a flash in the pan because it was the first like fully digital human characters. We went for the spectacle the, of it, right, not right. for the story of it. And 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 it hooked you because of the the buzz that they had successfully built about 3D technology, filming custom cameras, shooting in this volume space, and and the, oh, you like what you saw with Gollum? Well, you're gonna love these blue creatures, uh, these avatars, and and it's gonna and, and yeah, it was a it was a. I just remember crowd pleasing story. I just remember the buzz being like, "This is the first movie meant to see in 3D." Right. None of these four movies have that. They're gonna make going up something. for it. They're gonna make some right. Make up Return else. to the World of Pandora. Like it, they should know. Fox should know based on ticket sales for uh, or, or the relationship with licensing for Pandora Land in in World, uh, Walt Disney World. Whether there is an, a, an appetite for Pandora or for these characters, there's no way these are going to be. Like, if that first movie bombs, what's going to happen? Because Disney's going to own Fox by the time this comes out. Sunk cost. I think that's the economic term. <sighs> I make you $2.7 billion, You let me make whatever movies I want for the rest of my life. He has that could have been the deal. He has two of the top grossing movies he has ever. The two. Is it the two? I don't know if it's the anymore. It's two of the. He had at one point the two or the the, uh, the both top grossing movies and all the Academy Awards to show for. I guess don't don't bet against Cameron as uh, as Gary Widow would say. We have to uh, close pop culture with our tribute to our friend, our colleague, our mentor, Reggie. Those are me. <laughs> His, uh, I, this what, happened um, just a couple hours after the podcast last week, and um, I know everyone's making the Doug Bowser joke. I'm gonna. What about the "My Body Is Ready" joke? Yes, yeah, yes, yes. My yes. body's not ready. I'm gonna miss Reggie. Yeah, a lot. Like, um, I think they're. Uh, oh, I gotta find the quote. You vamp for a second. I'll I'll find the quote. <laughs> uh, yeah. So Doug Bowser replacing him. The photos, of course, been shared with Mario and Luigi tied in the background. Uh, Reggie's been with Nintendo 15 years, um, and uh, a lot of the great interviews and stories about his relationship as, as a leader and with his employees, um, and just champion Nintendo as a brand. Like he's seen it through thick and thin, right? Right. Post uh, GameCube, Rise of Wii, kind of a disappointment of Wii 2, and now leaving on this real high note of, of Switch. Uh, people are wondering why is he leaving? You know why? Why now? And you know he's he's earned he's deserves it. He deserves yeah. retirement if that's what he's going to do. I think he's going out on top. Um, yeah. The enough, quote, enough vamping. All right. The quote is from the 2004 E3 conference. He said, "My name is Reggie. I'm about kicking ass. I'm about taking names, and we're about making games. That's perfect, Reggie. That's great. That 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 is it. Goodbye, Reggie. Thank you for everything." Yeah, and we'll we'll still have all those E three videos, press conference, and the funny marketing, Nintendo marketing videos, to remember you by.
Ooh, that's me. All right. noise. Off of Mobile World Congress. You know what? Let's save Mobile World Congress for later in tech news because there's so many phones in the phones. I don't know. Some of them are exciting, though. Uh, I do want to talk about Apple a little bit. Not necessarily product-related because there's not, nothing super exciting on that front. But uh, the, the winners for the Shot on iPhone photography contest were announced and released, and they picked 10 photos uh, shot on devices ranging from iPhone 7 to the iPhone 10s Max. 10s Max. Did you submit one? Of course not. No. Oh come no. on! No, I don't want to public. I, I I didn't have my my iPhone lens cut or is is scuffed a little bit, so all the oh, phone, all okay, the photos okay. would have been slightly blurry. Uh, There's some great photos here. There are there. I think all of them are great photos. Great landscape photos. Really great compositions. The one that really um, struck me was the the tennis court one. I really enjoyed the that kind of simplistic. It's like a clay court yeah, with a yeah. big crack down it. I thought I thought that was good. It's almost graphic design more than the photo. There's a lot of reflection type shots it here. Really... I feel a little like derivative, but <laughs> my favorite is um, just because it's a spot I've been is one shot in Yosemite with a kid with a kid below half dome and uh, the small kid's hair is sort of like dangling in the sunlight and there's sort of like this kind of steam mist coming off of, of the meadow in front of uh, Half Dome. I, I, I enjoy those kinds of shots. My, my favorite one is the, the uh, is it, a, it is a reflection shot and it's a reflection shot of um, kind of a muddled, putty of, uh, muddled puddle of water against a building and it makes it look like the reflection is a painting. And I, I thought that was a beautiful shot. I'm kind of disappointed in, because I, I, I didn't survey, uh, as I said, I would have, I didn't survey like the submissions because they're all public. You just search a hashtag on Twitter. But it seemed like, you're right, like a lot of these photos are kind of derivative of things we've seen in past campaigns, beautiful landscape shots, kind of uh, reflection shots. We've seen those in past shot on iPhone campaigns. And I was hoping that with this type of contest, and especially with the judges, of uh, the panel of judges that they had, to select that they would select something different because for me is are these winners the winners because they're indicative of the limitations of smartphone photography and that you know the smartphone iPhones are best and, and smartphones in general are best f used for things like these type of HDR landscape shots and not necessarily some portrait shots and also maybe because of the duration of this contest uh, I was hoping for better spontaneous moments. I think a lot of great photography is about catching a rare or lucky moment. And the only one that I really felt like had any of that was like this raccoon looking through the uh, a tree trunk. And even that felt like it was a little staged and planned. They're like, I think a, a photo can have great, comp great composition, colors, whatever. Some of that post-processing isn't essential. It's good for a photo. But... If you can capture something in by being lucky or by good planning on something that someone else can't easily duplicate, that for me is a more a better hallmark of a good photo. I mean, what you're essentially saying is there there's not much humanity in these photos. They're they're of uh, texture, they're of places, they're they're not necessarily of of human moments. Uh, and so I get that. And I think if this uh, was running year over year and we saw this kind of stuff consistently, then we might be able to say, is this a limitation of the phone? But I think this is just sort of a, a selection of what won. I'm only, you know, part of the reason I, I'm slightly disappointed in the way you are is like one of the, the judges is Pete Souza, who is Obama's photographer. Exactly. And he's, and he's known for king. capturing moments. Yeah. 
right? And 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 you see this with like whenever they uh, release an iPhone, they'll seed the, the next phones with uh, photographers like Pete Souza or sports photographers, and those and, you, and the, the examples that come out of those uh, are one. And, and granted, those are professionals, and maybe they are m- more experienced in capturing moments rather than stills of uh, landscapes. Uh, but they're, I mean, that it's a great way to showcase. A functionality of your phone, if you're going to tout things like burst mode or portrait mode or whatever, um, like I think a very underused uh, feature in the phone is burst mode, like holding down that shutter button and capturing you know, 30 photos and then picking out your best moment. And Google has an ad campaign now for for capture for doing that. Uh, the shot on Pixel, yeah, that kind of yeah, thing. yeah, yeah. And and I'm kind of over as beautiful as they are. Your your mountain shot. Yeah, I get that. But at the same time, keep doing this campaigns. I love seeing these yeah. photos. I love seeing the photos from um uh, from photographers from wherever. That's the I mean, that's the brilliance of this is that anyone has well not anyone, anyone that has a few thousand dollars has one of these phones. Um but it it makes it uh, just much more interesting the the potential canvas. You know, well. what what a and, and it just came to my mind. Um, yeah, Apple has in the past. I think uh, Steve Jobs has admired like design philosophy from companies like Polaroid, right? And obviously, uh, one of the big killer apps and killer functionalities of the 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 reason you buy these phones and spend up to over a thousand dollars on them is for their photo uh, photography and videography capabilities. Um, what an opportunity for Apple to make shot on iPhone the new Kodak moment. I mean, the phrase Kodak moment still holds in Does it? pop culture. I think it's starting to fade. Maybe starting to fade, but it, it it meant something, right? It meant something, and this was a chance for Apple to take, as that may be fading, the Kodak moment, to take that um, that idea and to kind of own it for iPhone. Yeah, well, shot on an iPhone isn't quite there for me yet. Right, exactly. If the yeah. phrasing doesn't quite Shot work. on iPhone almost feels like a crutch, like, oh, it, 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 it's it's a very defensive posture, right? Like, this is shot on iPhone, even though it may look like it was shot on a DSLR. Like, oh, it's shot on iPhone. It's it's just a smartphone, but it can still take pictures that are that look good. Surprise, it's shot on iPhone. And I think smartphones and the technology and, and the cameras have gotten to a point where, because they are the new normal, everyone has one, shot on iPhone needs to be a competitive advantage, and you need to have not only beautiful quality images, but the ability to capture the moments, mm-hmm. which I think is essential for photography. All right, moving on, because we have a ton of tech stories. So okay. we're going we're gonna to do some rapid discussion. All right. FedEx has announced its last mile robots. So just like Amazon and a bunch uh, of startups, these little robots that are sort of like self-driving, they can go up to 10 miles an hour. Where, where is this useful? Okay, so here's the use case is basically they're saying there's a ton of retailers that have outlets everywhere. So like an auto zone, let's say, that is within a, a couple miles of a ton of people. So this is last mile delivery from places like that. So it's prime now, but democratized and not owned by one company. That's right. I think people are going to behave badly when oh, they see course. these robots coming down the street. They're going to get kicked. They're going to, yeah. This is going to end badly. For and this FedEx is robot. not, and last mile 
only makes sense in an urban environment. You know, we're talking about the majority of America. A mile gets you nowhere, right? The last 10 or last 15 miles is much more important in middle America than last mile and getting getting your goods from your local your big box store or or the the, uh, the shopping outlet. I think it's cool tech. It just reinforces the larger narrative of just like this idea of delivery of stuff. Convenience is is a really uh, crowded and and sort of bottlenecked area. Otherwise, we wouldn't be seeing store like div- innovations like this. This tells you that like we cannot handle the amount of delivery that's coming through our our logistics system. It also screams uh, like very Silicon Valley insular thinking in like the, the the hot new thing. And oh, Amazon's doing it. We gotta be in the robot delivery space too. Uh, you know, FedEx as a logistics company, they're not a robotics company. And this this. I would hope that they're smart enough to to make the business plan. So, I mean, the money that went into this could have been used to build up their fleet in where most of their business happens, you yep. know, whether that's in the middle America or, or in the big cities. Um, all right, phone stuff. Let's let's talk about Mobile World Congress. So we got one foldable phone last week that you guys talked about, the Galaxy uh, Galaxy Fold. Over two thousand, two thousand dollars. Is that right? Nineteen eighty, almost two thousand dollars. We got two more foldable phones shown since. Uh, Oppo has one, and actually, not the more interesting Oppo announcement, by the way. For according, to yes. Me. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. So Oppo, of course, affiliated with uh, OnePlus, same uh, parent company. Uh, they showed a uh, prototype uh, of a foldable phone. I actually think it looks a lot better than the Galaxy Fold because it has let the phone part. Uh, it, it, it's actually more of like the um, uh, the phone part has less of a bezel, so that when you fold it um, from the tablet into the phone, like you have a phone that's sort of consistent with what our edge to edge screens are. It has still has a bezel on it, but and I mean, the, I think this whole thing is ridiculous. Yes. but I mean, like, I mean, in terms of how it looked compared to the Galaxy Fold, I think it looks better. And then the Huawei Mate. 10 mate x which is another foldable phone this one from what people have have said and have seen it is supposed to be a lot better than the galaxy fold and when it folds flat it just looks like uh, you know more squarish screen now from a use case perspective right why do you want it, that kind of rectangular screen like why do you want less of a rectangle why do you want the square screen on your phone on your phone i don't know Right. Uh, I can't make a, a, a case for it. I would like the closest I came is like I was thinking about like the Galaxy Note users, those people that like like using styluses. Like, is that sure? For... It is a bigger physical canvas for drawing, note taking, maybe for looking at images. Uh, it's not going to be great for video because video you'd want to watch on a sixteen closer to sixteen by nine or even wider screen than that, uh, and the web is really not optimized. Mobile web and mobile apps not optimized for anything other than kind of tall and narrow uh, design, even on tablets. And Jeremy said this too, like the Android system we don't know of is optimized for apps to make this kind of switch from well, folded to non-folded, right? I mean, they could do Android that Android much better than than Apple in terms of like how... They, but but not really optimized but, for this, No, no, right? no. Optimized in terms of like it's more turnkey, but less optimized in terms of design sense. Yeah, that's what I mean is it, yeah. the design sense. Like, because, you know, Samsung did that demo where it's like they went from maps on the phone to the to the tablet part. 
And like, that's not really going to integrate well with a ton of apps. And if you're talking about <laughs> side by side, a lot of examples are web browser on one side, Google Maps on the other side, and, and like drag and drop. You can do that now with hinge phones. You don't need it to be one display. And you're just introducing a lot of potential for mechanical failure, for wear and tear. Um, I'm open to be proven wrong. Like, I'm open to trying this out and a use case, like, emerging that I don't see, but I haven't seen it in the demos that they've done on stage yet. And then these phones, when they're in their folded, folded you know, like, hinged, um, uh, their, their tent mode, as it were, what, what is the application for that? I, I can see, like, a very novel, maybe, like, you're going to fold the phone in half and you get to see one screen and I can see a screen and we're playing what? Battleship or something. That's really the only... Inst- or watching different movies. One phone, two two movies, one phone. <laughs> or we can be watching the same movie, but sitting across from each other. Okay. Wow. Uh, see, n- see, like, these kind of novel... You could have subtitles on. I don't... Yeah. I mean, wow. That is a terrible use case, but I'm with you. This, right? This is solving the brother-sister dilemma in the backseat of the minivan. Oh, they're, they all look super bulky. Uh, the Huawei one has definitely a big bulge uh, at the end of them. And if this is, if they needed to productize foldable OLED displays as a way to get to thinner and to, to you know, ramp up and, and commoditize the technology, uh, then fine. I don't think anyone's going to buy them. And not at these price points, too. No. They're and, double the cost of a, of, a, of a phone. Yeah. And as long as you can buy a separate tablet and a phone for basically half the price. It's going to be hard to convince the market. Samsung is the only one out of these companies with the money, and then Huawei is a massive company too, with the money to, to, to spend this, to put the R&D, productize something that they know, they know no one's really going to buy just to get their foot in the door before Apple does it. And that's not to say Apple will do it, but I would think that if Apple was going to do it, they would release it in a way where it would, they would need to, you know, it would have to be a flagship and they would have to expect tens or hundreds of millions of people using it as opposed to it being the novel niche thing at the, in the prototype you know, uh, um, boutique space. Well, let's talk about the more interesting Oppo announcement, or at least I think it's more interesting. Yeah, uh, cameras, back to cameras. And this goes into the maturity and innovation in, in camera, mobile camera technology. We know that mobile phones have natural limitations just in physics and spaces. Uh, so that's why you have as wide apertures you can get on those sensors and lenses. Uh, it's still... Even when it's dual aperture, it's, it's still physics limited. Yes, yeah. physics limited, especially in Zoom, right? So you have bulges on phones if you want to get your a telephoto, if you want to get a 50 mil equivalent. Oppo has put a 160 mil equivalent uh, lens on their phone without having huge bulge. And this is supposed to be a 10x optical zoom over their wide-angle counterpart, which they also have on the back of that phone. So they claim this is lossless. What does that actually mean? It means it's not a digital zoom. They're not cropping in. No, now, but I mean, like, it's like, they they like quoted it, though. It's not actually fully optical, is it? It is fully optical because it uses a periscope system. They, uh, they stack the lens elements... Not on one plane, it is an angle, and so it is a larger uh, behind-the-body system, um, but it can still fit in however thick that phone is. That's kind of cool. That is cool. I think that's totally neat, and I I bet that, you know, people who study lensing and, and lens design will say that a periscope system has natural 
deficiencies and you're going to lose some image quality no matter what if you do it that way. Maybe. I don't know. Uh, but they, they can get an optical zoom without a, without a bulge. Yeah, I mean, do you... Uh, yeah, I, I, have, I have questions I'll hold until we can actually see some of this uh, operating. This is part of a trend that we're seeing in a lot of phones to have now, instead of two cameras front and back, or three cameras, two on the on the back, one in the front. Now five we're, cameras, we're getting cameras. five cameras, like that Nokia one has five cameras. And like, do you, is, is that going to be where we go? I mean, it's kind of yeah. interesting. I mean, the the rumor had... is that three cameras on not maybe this year's iPhone, but next year's iPhone. And it's all about computer vision and computational mm-hmm. photography. It's all about uh, world mapping and building the infrastructure in place so that when you have multiple sensors and lenses, one, it's an easy, quote unquote, easy solution just to add um, add those in as opposed to reinventing the, the wheel uh, and, and physics. Uh, but two, it gives opportunity to combine those images for something interesting. And you would hope that compute and um, and like neural networking and for processing of images get to a point where you don't have to. You can do that and not have to wait a long time for something cool to happen. Uh, last week, I'm I teased the LG G8, which we had some initial photos of. I am ready to take back all of that excitement. Talk <laughs> to the hand. Talk to the hand. Time like. One of the features of the LG G8 is, no, not face ID, it's hand ID, where the front-facing camera can now respond to physical manifestations of of your extremities, both by size, shape, uh, even the, the, what they say, I think they said the veins in your palm. It is reading your palm. There's no indication of whether this is accurate or not. Right, like there's a lot of information when Face ID first came out about 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 false. We don't get any of that yet. Hmm. I just like hmm. everything from that we've talked about in VR over the past couple of years about like hand motion and tracking and stuff makes me think this is really ridiculous. Yeah, it's not skeletal modeling. It's still an imaging based yeah. system. I, I, is this a viable biometrics? Mechanism. I, it, it just doesn't occur that way yeah. that it is, and it, like is going like this to your phone like any sort of like right efficiency right? Yeah, I mean, I'd be way more interested if if it got to a point where skeletal modeling was as precise enough so that everyone's minute and basically their 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 uh, their gait signatures in their wrist and finger movement is what unlocks your phone uh, versus the the photo of your palm and your fingerprint. I mean, all the other specs on the phone are like consistent with a high-end phone. And I and I have no complaints about that. I mean, the only minor thing is they have a physical button for bringing up Google Assistant and and I don't I don't know. I just don't I'm not a big believer in a physical button for that kind of functionality uh at this point, but so this seems like a a weird feature to be enabling. Yeah. All right, well, if you're not interested in a phone that you will show your palm to, how about a phone that is three times as thick as an iPhone but will last 50 hours of talk time? This seems insane. Um, like, first of all, who who needs this much power? Like, where what is the use case where you need... Like, how many recharges is this for an iPhone? Like, like 10 recharges or something it, like it's, that? It's, it's in, in that range. It's a 18, 
1,000 milliamp hour batteries. It comes from Energizer, and the name is ridiculous. It's called um, the, what is it? Uh, the Pop. The, there's, a, there's like a longer, much. The Energizer PowerMax K18 Pop, made in collaboration with the French telecoms company, Avenir. 18,000 milliamp hours, which is six times most other cell phones, more than that for if you're talking about iPhones, 6.2 inch edge edge say with a pop up camera, five cameras on this thing. It feels like this is the thing you should keep in your car as your emergency phone. And at that point, why would you want that kind of touch screen and all that app I interface? I don't know if you need that interface. I I'm also like one where I've I've lose my my portable batteries. Um, all the time. I like the commoditization of like the 4,500 size. And like, the rug, how rugged, rugged they are, are. And, how, how, and, and how disposable essentially they are. You can get like a bunch of them and throw one in each bag as opposed to having one here. And I'm, I'm sorry, not 50 hours, 90 hours uh, for talk time and 100 hours of music playback, two days of video playback. I'm not sure I've had 90 hours of phone call time last year. If yeah. I really look right. at it. Right. You could watch more than two full seasons of 24 on one battery charge. Don't do that to yourself, <laughs> but you could do it. Uh, on standby mode, 50 days of standby, which isn't even enough. We're no. talking about like, like an emergency. This is an emergency phone, right? Bad idea bears all around. All right. How about um, on something more safe? On the Sony side, finally, we have some new Xperia phones. Uh, which have a really widescreen display, 21 by 9 ultra-wide display. If you're about watching movies, even that's too wide for movies. Yeah, it's a 4K OLED display. Uh, I mean, it is the aspect ratio of of, uh, of, uh, of uh, movie, not 16 by 9, but um, of your standard, not panorama, but uh, like your cinema scope, essentially. Mm-hmm. Um so no more pan and scan, except, I guess, you get to get black bars if you're watching a 16 by 9 uh, film. Um, I've never used an Xperia. Have you ever gone hands-on with one? Yeah, yeah. They're, they're great great glass. Uh, actually, I think a Xperia phone was the first phone I used way back that had a 1080 display. And I'm like, who needs a 1080p display on a smartphone? And now we're talking about four times the number of pixels, twice the resolution. Um, it All of these scream that cell phones, smartphones have matured to a fact to a point where the companies making them are just desperate. They can't be out of the business because they used to be big revenue generators and they have businesses around them and people still need them, but they are commodity products and it's gonna, it's it's outside of being a Samsung or you know, LG and an Apple um, to, to get people to spend a lot of money every year on these new phones. Yeah, and especially in, in the Android ecosystem where people are perfectly happy with their pixels. Is that right, Kishore? <laughs> Did, I actually uh, destroyed my Pixel by accident, so I just have my Pixel 2 uh, a work phone right now. Uh, but I'm perfectly happy with my Pixel. Mm. All right, uh, some kind of uh, data storage news. MicroSD is getting a new standard, MicroSD Express, which is cool. Um, it was announced at World uh, War Congress, and it has much faster uh, data speeds. So we're talking about um, 
what we're talking about. Uh, Capacity-wise, one terabyte, 160 megabytes per second reading, and 90 megabytes per second writing. I don't know. I have no idea if that's how fast that, how much of an improvement that is. Is this actually the case? I mean, this actually doesn't sound that much faster, right? Yeah, because on normal SD cards, you, you get up to 300 megabytes per second, which you do need when you're shooting at the hybrid rate or raw footage or you know log footage. But one terabyte on a micro SD card is kind of insane. That is insane. But I mean, it's it's great for the kind of video. Uh, footage that you you shoot you shoot like behind the scenes i'm going to give listeners a little behind the scenes at tested there's always discussions about memory cards always 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 yep this is the number one discussion here never have enough space never be big enough Uh, all i jeremy and i ever want to do is buy norm more memory cards so (laughs) that we can have less memory card chat before every podcast every video shoot memory cards so these um oh i'm sorry uh, no, that, that's right, yeah. Uh, these micro SD cards are based off PCIe and NVMe interfaces, so they're kind of inheriting the um, the, uh, the the SSDs, uh, the improvements that we've had. Um, and, uh, you know, this is technically part of the SD 7.0 schematic that will be backward compatibility and all that jazz. I just... I hate putting all my all my media in one bucket. Especially in S, you know, a, pl- a card that one can terabyte get lost, seems like a really scratched, yeah, a ridiculous amount of space. Yeah. Uh, yeah. But the prices have come down so much, like yeah, maybe that's fine. Yeah, you want to get confused by USB? Uh, I'm already fairly confused by USB. All right, so let's let's talk about USB IF, the implementers forum. They have they have announced their new standard. Hey, what are we on right now? Three, right? We're on three point one. Okay, right now. But tell me, do you know what USB three point one? What, what 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 the standards are, what the speeds are. So we had Not USB two for the longest time, yeah. right? Which was like everyone understood it. When USB three came out, oh, the ports are now blue, and you had a throughput of five five gigs per five second, gigabits yeah. per second, right? And then they decided, as opposed to doing a USB four, they did three point one. And so the difference between three point one and three, not many people know this. They got rid of three. What we previously had known as USB 3.0 is now called USB 3.1, or has been called USB 3.1 Gen 1, 5 gigabits per second. USB 3.1 Gen 2, which was the, the previously the highest um, uh, the, the throughput, is 10 gigabits per second. Oh. Right? And that's, US, that's super speed, colloquially, right? So USB super speed, 10 USB 10 mm-hmm. gigabits per second. Uh, and now there is USB 3.2, which has now gotten rid of USB 3.1. And now it's convention. now what was previously USB 3 is now called USB 3.2 Gen 1, 5 gigabits per second. There's USB 3.2 Gen 2, which is 10 gigabits per second. And now you, they'll double that again. And so what, what do you think it's called? USB 3.2 Gen 2? 3? 3? Gen right? 3? Right? The one, Gen 1, Gen 2, Gen 3? Nope. It's called USB 3.2 Gen 2x2. Two two. Oh. 
Because you know, and I thought IUPAC naming conventions and chemistry were bad. This is really awful for consumers who don't want to speak in technical terms. It's going to be super speed five gigabits, super speed ten gigabits, and super speed twenty gigabits, all the same port. Great. Then this isn't even this is not even talking about what the port is, USB C or not. This is just the the cable. Change the color. I really like what they did with blue being a standard. I don't know if that was part of IF, but I agree. How about red? Right? Sure. Black There's lots USB of USB two, blue. Go for red. Red is faster than blue. No one uses yellow. Let's get some yellow out here. Green. Yeah, purple. No, green's a power button. Stop it. Is Most power true? buttons are green. No, no, that's not true anymore. No. Yeah. No, but green has always been the light indicators on the back, like the breaker. Mm. goes red to green, right? I feel like blue has kind of overtaken green as the power button color. Really? How yeah. dare you, blue? Yeah. Let's get all the colors of the gauntlet. That's what I want. All right. Last couple bits of news. This is a, a fun thread uh, found on Twitter. Someone who used to work on the Google Maps team uh, shortly after Google acquired... Do you remember when the, that Google... Uh, Google... Um, not Google Maps, but Google Earth was an acquisition, right? Mm-hmm. And Google Earth was what allowed Google to do as a keyhole, uh, was allowed you to do a satellite view. Yeah, yeah. Where you could see, yeah. I, was it called satellite view? So I think it launched as satellite view. Because there was also terrain, I remember. Yes, yes, that's right. Um, which is a little bit of a misnomer because the photos are not actually taken by satellites. Mostly when you get that close, when you get up to the building size, it, it is... Uh, aerial photography with like mm-hmm. airplanes and stuff. And so uh, this thread from Brett Taylor um, talks about the origin about how satellite view was almost named bird mode. <laughs> That's I don't ridiculous. Know, I, I, I kind of like it. Bird mode. And it came down to the executives at Google having uh, review meetings for new product launches and features and setting a timer clock in the meeting room for how long the meetings could last, and the last decision needs to be made within that timer. And I think it was uh, Larry Page who, uh, at the last moment, when the buzzer hit, uh, no, Sergey, who was the last person, let's just call it bird mode. And then the buzzer hit, and they had to call it bird mode, and then the engineers kind of, didn't ask for permission and instead sometimes it's better to ask for forgiveness ask for forgiveness and just said no that's not a good name and called it satellite mode uh, even though there was some internal division among their team about calling it satellite mode because they're not technically satellite photo all satellite photos and no one has complained since and the executives forgot about it sometimes you just got to do what's right go with your gut that's right mode. everyone out there just disobey your boss and see what happens do the right thing satellite mode Bird mode. I'm Thanks. not. I'm not opposed to bird mode. Um, shall we talk uh, a little bit about electric cars? Yeah, we don't, need to, we don't need to jump into the shower for this. Yeah, okay. No need for that. Um, Tesla under a little bit of scrutiny, more scrutiny. Elon may be getting in trouble by the SEC for tweeting about sales, uh, sales numbers and projections, uh, and then he They're was reprimanded. Pretty mad at him. Yeah, because I, mean, I think they warned him after the last one. And then technically uh, the agreement is that he needs to test the board needs to approve his tweets when they're related to the company um, and it may have an effect on stock price and then his defense for this one is that this was in the transcript for the last earnings call the projections that he had tweeted out. So 
whatever. But more troublesome for them is Consumer Reports taking away the recommendation for the Model 3 last year. So on the surface, that's concerning. But the why they took it away makes this less concerning for me. Yes. And they said it was because of inconsistencies in in, in, uh, quality control. Yeah. And so like people are complaining. They've seen an uptick in complaints about... Uh, issues with like screen freezing and um, some issues uh, about paint and trim issues. Paint and trim issues have been since day one with the Model 3 as they were refining the process, which anecdotally have been resolved. Although I will say also anecdotally from using the car, uh, screen freezing, you know, backup camera being black and, and not being turned on, taking a while to boot on. That stuff is still present. There are still it's a, and that's much, a serious problem. Yeah. Like I'm not trying to you know sort of overwrite that, but those are things that can be overcome. Like where this would be concerning for me is if Consumer uh, Reports downgraded its like safety rating or something like something like core to what that car is about, um, or it's like misleading battery life or something like that. And sure. like we're not getting something that's that serious. This feels like at the edges at the kind of edges that like software and process fixes can resolve. Yeah. Uh, and then of course they, it, you know, software is such a big part of cars these days and it's the only company car company where it's software is so scrutinized as much as a smartphone company is uh, because even, even like, you know, Google, Google drive or, or CarPlay don't aren't scrutinized as much as the Tesla's, uh, Tesla car software. Maybe that's because of the fanaticism of the uh, the customer base, or because it is so different in being all touchscreen in the car and the first of that kind of generation of cars to do so. Um, but new software all the time. Of course, you can play Atari games. We did a video with playing some Atari games in the Model Three, and now there is the long-awaited Sentry Mode. This is pretty neat. Sentry Mode actually took a screenshot of the update after... Is it just patrolling your driveway to make sure no one's like... Has nothing to do with autopilot. Uh, It is about protecting the car. And it is... I'll read it. Sentry mode allows your vehicle to be aware of its surroundings when parked by using its sensors, microphones, cameras, and computer. So it evaluates risks of theft or vandalism. Theft, I think, being... uh, Theft of goods, not the theft of the car. And records videos when your window breaks or when damage happens, when the, the sensor proximity sensors are triggered to a certain amount. And you can't calibrate that. It's just like it is on. If you have a USB stick plugged into one of the USB ports, um, it has to be formatted a certain way. It will save video onto the USB stick and then blare sound maximum volume and give – it has actually has a HAL, HAL 9000i that displays when sensory mode is on. So people, it's, it's supposed to be a deterrence as well free people to know that they are being watched by your car. Um, they also, though, in the fine print, the video is sent back to Tesla, they say, for uh, temporary backup, but also for fe- nebulously feature improvement. So be aware, if you turn this mode on, and you can turn it on, on not only when you um, leave the car on the display, but also the app now lets you activate sensory mode remotely, uh, you are also giving them video clips, which I think you already are. Like if you're the type of person who is kind of paranoid about being filmed, uh, you should definitely tape up the internal camera inside your Model 3. There's a, a, a dashboard uh, camera, uh, a driver-facing camera. Uh, it does consume additional battery life, and so uh, it will 
uh, turn off when battery drops below 20%. So it's something that, for example, I didn't have it for my trip to New York, but my next week-long trip, I'm going to turn it on and see in a week how if I leave sentry mode on for a week with a full charge, how long it will take to, to drain that That's battery. That's interesting. Yeah, I also like the idea that your wife is going to try to get into the car and it's just going to be like, get away. Norm says no. That's a good question of whether I should have it enabled at the airport. Like if I'm going to park it at the airport parking lot. Because you can geofence it, right? Um, no. You, uh, what do you mean? Like you can, can you have it not be, I mean, I guess you're, it's just a toggle. So it's on and off. It's, like, on, it's on or off. Yeah. Yeah. But, but whether I'm going to get more interesting data from using sentry mode for a week at the airport parking lot when cars passing by, potentially people yeah, passing yeah. by, or uh, parked on the sidewalk. Or to see how driveway. sensitive it is. And, yeah. Exactly. Maybe the driveway makes more sense because people do walk by uh, and I'll you know, put a, a plenty big USB stick and record that footage. That's about it for tech news. That is it for technology news. Uh, we're going to skip a VR minute this week because we did a bunch of Holland's 2 talk at the top of the show, but we will move on to our last... Our final segment this you week. You don't have a, a message for us? No, I don't. Oh, okay. Um, this thing. Oh. No. There it is. Now it's time for a moment of science. All right. Science Twitter was all in a hizzy yesterday. Uh, it might have been two days ago by the time you're hearing this. Because a story came out in Quanta magazine. If you haven't heard of Quanta Magazine, it's a magazine that comes out that's funded by the Simons Foundation, sort of in-house magazine that generally reports on physics uh, phenomena. And they have incredible long-form stories on all sorts of phenomena. It's actually really e exceptional read, and they have great writers there. Uh, and this is probably not the first one, but this is one of the first times I recall seeing a long-form piece on climate change emerged from Quantum Magazine. And the author, uh, author was reporting on a new paper that came out um, suggesting some new climate modeling on the impacts of long-term warming on clouds. And so one of the, the basic finding was, as reported in this outlet, was that there's new projections going out about 100 years that if we stay on our current course, all the stratocumulus clouds will disappear. Clouds are going away. Clouds will disappear wow. because of the as a result of the warming. I now, mean, let's break this down, though. Yes, tell us why clouds going away is a bad thing. Well, clouds going down is a bad thing because clouds actually reflect radiation back out. They have essentially an albedo effect. And so they're white, and so they reflect light away from the Earth. So if those clouds go away, we accelerate warming. Clouds are also fun to look at. <laughs> like, I mean, if you think they about post-apocalypse. weather patterns. Yeah. Like like uh, uh, this, uh, uh, movies, post-apocalyptic films, and just the portrayal of the landscapes. Are there clouds? There are no clouds. They're pretty desolate. Well, they must be shooting in the in in a certain location without clouds. <laughs> I um, it, let's ta break this down though. So the models they used are something called an eddy model, which is this sort of simulation that essentially looks at these different currents. Uh, that emerge as they change the CO2 concentration. So the fundamental uh, like mo uh, assumption that this model used is that we're not going to make any changes at all over the next 100 years. So currently we're at 400 parts per million. That's a number that people have largely heard as a as sort of like a peak. Or, or it's actually we're well beyond it now. Uh, climate load, uh, uh, carbon dioxide load. 
they are talking about going up to 1,200 parts per million. That's triple where we are right now. Uh, that is, most climate scientists think that's sort of like an insane number to be feeding into this model. And when they fed that into the model and did all these simulations comparing these six different what's called eddy simulations, as I mentioned, they saw how the associated degree rise of just the CO2 concentration affected the clouds and then extrapolated the clouds disappearing as a part of that warming would have on the overall temperature increase. And which would turn and, and Yeah, and so it turned out to be eight degrees Celsius <gasps> increase. Um, That's catastrophic. The, super catastrophic. Let's chill out <laughs> for a second. This simulation is sort of on like a bleeding edge. It's a scenario that's not sort of grounded in reality. A lot of climate scientists have come out and been like, ch like chill, this is like, um, this is a, a really aggressive model. Um, we expect not to get to 1200 PPM. I mean, if we're at 1200 PPM, like life is over. Like, let's <laughs> like, we're done. Um, <laughs> this is <laughs> terrifying. And, but it's, and the model's out like 100 years. We're talking about projections 100 years from now. The climate discussion right now should be on like what's happening 10 years from now right or what's happening now yes like we're in the midst of a pretty big storm here in california this storm is actually much warmer than it should be right now so let this isn't about 100 year projections i would sort of like not worry about the clouds going away we have more immediate problems so i'm just going to take down the temperature haha <laughs> about that whole discussion one of the craziest stories I've seen um, in science came out about uh, a week or two ago. Can I interest you in Hachimoji? What is that? It's a new form of moji. No, it's not really a new form of moji. Do you know what Hachi is in Japanese? No. It's eight. And I'm sure I'm mispronouncing it. But let's start with, um, let's back up a second. A-C-T-G? Yes. Base DNA pairs. base pairs, right? Forever, we are confined to having four base pairs. That is the that the, those num those letters make up you and me. Yes, uh, well, DNA. Stephen Brenner, uh, who's a, a famous molecular chemist, says, "Why? Why only four, Norm?" And so he's been experimenting for a long time with creating synthetic base pairs to see if we can extend four to any number beyond it. Any number, not just like multiplying by two. Well, he's trying, you know, incremental progress, right? And so he's successfully made a couple times now um, synthetic base pairs that are able to actually pair with each other and extend the number of uh, uh, of essentially uh, pairs that are in a double helix formation. And does it just be more granular and, and, and is it classification? I mean, these are usually, these are small modifications to the actual chemical structure of those base pairs and they make distinct um, uh, characters. So instead of ACTG, we have more letters now. Uh, two weeks ago, it came out with a paper that they were able to do it with eight letters and twist it into a helix formation. Now, this is interesting for a couple reasons. So one, it's an interesting feat of science. Uh, first, first and foremost, what's more interesting to me is the information uh, retention uh, possibility. Like we've done stories about how people have encoded uh, information and decoded it out of DNA with four. Essentially, we have a four-bit system. You're now saying we have that eight-bit system. Man of Steel plot where 
in Superman's DNA is the genetic code for the entire Kryptonian race. And that's why Zod wanted to kill him. That is a real possibility. Uh, We are getting closer, for sure. This has been done, um, like Brenner did some experiments in bacteria where he created like these kind of uh, synthetic hybrid um, uh, DNA and actually inserted it into a live cell. Uh, so it, it, we are getting closer to it being done. And the name for an eight base pair DNA strand is Hachimoji. Hachimoji. Very cool. You know, this podcast is fun as a dual cast. It is much more fun when there is someone here who does not get my comic book references. <laughs> You're just, just taking taking all those in really? for granted. Really? I... I feel bad about all the comic explaining we've done to him over the years. So, I, I try. Jeremy can take it. <laughs> Happy birthday! <laughs> the Zod reference was pretty solid, though. I'll give you that. All right, I think that does it for this week's episode. Uh, another bits of science. Your no, moment is the, over. That, my moment. The does. moment of science is over. Uh, I want to thank you all for listening this week. Uh, we're going to try to find a time to record next week that all of us, all three of us, will be available. Um, because if not, it's going to be a funky month of March. I'm also doing another week of travel uh, late March as well. Uh, but we got a lot of fun stuff on the site. Uh, we did a couple video shoots with a toy photographer, uh, Johnny Wu, uh, who showed us some cool practical effects with his toy photography, and he's actually going to come in the studio. We're going to do more with him in uh, in the future. Um, and uh, we also have, of course, the King Arthur Armor Build series uh, on YouTube as well. If you haven't got a chance to watch that as a member, uh, feel free, please check that out and uh, let us know what you think, and we'll have more of those videos going out. Um, I really like well. the um, the videos this week from uh, Prop Store yeah, about yeah. the the toys that were going up. For oh gosh, I was in LA for a day and I just got to be able to stop by for for an hour and 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 it was like being in a toy museum. Uh, and so that auction is going on. I think as you might be listening to this podcast on Thursday and Friday. So uh, check out Vintage Toys at uh, the Prop Store Auction website, propstoreauction.com. We have an outro this week. I'm going to go old school and bring back our friend Justin, aka Speed. Oh, come on, Internet. Hi there. I didn't see you. That's it. Phenomenal film. You like Last Jedi. I think Last Jedi is the best Star Wars film. I think Rogue One is very high on the list. You mean, we got have we not talked about this? You no. mean of the new ones? No, of all of them. Oh, goodness. Goody, goody. That's it. I disagree with that take. (laughs) Hot takes. All right. Time for a hot lunch.